We call this Sunday, Gaudete Sunday, the third Sunday of Advent. And that word Gaudete, it is the Latin word for rejoice. We get it from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, the Latin translation of that, where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always again. I say rejoice, indeed the Lord is near. So this is the entrance antiphon uh, for this Mass today. We sang, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which is a beautiful hymn and very appropriate. Uh, but one option is to, is to sing or chant the entrance antiphon. And so that's, um, for centuries, the Mass was in Latin. And that's, that would be the first word people would hear on this Sunday, is Gaudete, Latin for rejoice. We're called to rejoice because this season of Advent is coming to a close. We are more than halfway through it. Our Lord's nativity, his birth, is near. But the church, uh, the church's call for us to rejoice, if you look at this read, the readings that she gives us, it's a very realistic one. It's not a naive optimism that ignores the realities or hardships of life. No, our readings today are really pretty honest, that that life can be difficult, that there can be suffering, that there can be serious troubles. Yet, the two prophets given to us in these readings, they challenge us to rejoice in Christ even in the midst of troubles and difficulties, to rejoice to patiently wait, and to not lose that hope because the Lord is near indeed. Our first reading is taken from the prophet Isaiah. That would be the first of the two prophets we are introduced to. And he begins with this image of flowers blooming in the desert, right? You don't have to be a botanist to know flowers and deserts don't go together. And he's not speaking literally here. He's using flowers and deserts as an image for the people of Israel. Isaiah lived in demoralizing times, all right? Uh, The Assyrians were a pretty brutal empire that conquered most of Israel. In fact, they reduced this once great kingdom to just the city of Jerusalem and a few surrounding areas. And after the Assyrians, the Babylonians would conquer what was left. But the Lord had promised this great kingdom. And so Isaiah's words to his people are words of hope. He says, fear not, your God will come to save you. Out of the desert, flowers will bloom. Out of the ashes of this fallen kingdom, a savior, an anointed one, will arise. An anointed one in Hebrew, Messiah, In Greek, Christos will come to save us. That's Isaiah's message, that even in the midst of this demoralizing time when Israel seems beaten down, forgotten, abandoned by God, we're called still to rejoice because the Lord is near. Fast forward to our gospel, and we see John the Baptist, the second prophet the readings introduce us to, the last of the prophets, John the Baptist is sitting in a prison. He's actually in Herod's dungeon. And he's there because he uh, preached the truth to somebody in power. 
Uh, Herod was married to his brother's wife. John said that was immoral. Herod put him in prison. But anyways, he sends his disciples to ask Christ what is frankly a pretty odd question. Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And why do I say that's odd? Well, this is Matthew chapter 11, okay? In the beginning of the Gospels, we have the baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan. John the Baptist recognizes Jesus as the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah at that moment. So here we are later, after Christ has begun his public ministry, and John is asking this question, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Why? Well, perhaps sitting in, in King Herod's dungeon, John the Baptist was tempted to doubt. I mean, after all, if Jesus was the Christ, if he was this long-awaited Messiah King, why was his forerunner sitting in prison? Why was the herald sent by God to prepare the way for Christ left to die in a dungeon, which in fact uh, would, would happen to John? The truth is that even great saints like John the Baptist can be tempted with doubts in the midst of trials and sufferings and hardships. So when we are tempted with doubts in the midst of trials and sufferings and hardships, we're in good company. But the difference between the saints and us very often is how the saints respond to those temptations and doubts. Because John responds by reaching out for Christ. He sends his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? He turns to Christ for consolation, and Jesus essentially says, those signs prophesied by Isaiah eight centuries ago, they're being fulfilled right now. The blind regain their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news proclaimed to them. Jesus doesn't just say, yes, I am. He says, look at my works. They show that I am who I say I am, that I am who you said I was at the River Jordan when I was baptized. You know, I suppose Jesus really summed up the message of these readings uh, and really of this whole celebration on Gaud Gaudete Sunday uh, in a passage from John's Gospel where he says, In the world you will have trouble, but take courage. I have overcome the world. We, too, will experience, to one degree or another, what Isaiah and John the Baptist went through. We will, in this life, good and beautiful as it is, we will have trouble, difficulty. We will face, to one degree or another, hardship and suffering. And the challenge of John the Baptist, the challenge of Isaiah, is to not let that sour us, to not let that steal from us our faith and our hope in the Lord. And even more than that, to still rejoice because we know the Lord is near, that he is coming, that sin and death will not have the last word, but he will. You know, John gives us this particular way to respond to these doubts by turning to our Lord. And there's another man who is not a saint, though one day he may be, who I think gets even more specific about how we should, how we can rejoice in the midst of suffering and trials. 
And he's an American uh, priest, Father Walter Chiswick. He was also a Jesuit. Um, and he went through a very unique ordeal in his lifetime. As a young priest, uh, 1939 or 1940, he was sent to the Soviet Union in the midst of World War II. And he was sent there clandestinely because, you see, the Soviet Union was an atheistic regime. And they were no friends of, of any religion. In particular, they didn't want anything to do with Catholicism because Catholicism, being an international church, was a lot harder to control. So he had to go in there covertly. He worked as an as a unskilled logger in the Ural Mountains for about a year and then would minister in secret to people, would say mass and give the sacraments. Well, despite being very careful, he was arrested after about a year, and he would spend the next 23 years imprisoned in the Soviet Union. The vast majority of that time was spent in uh, Siberian labor camps, right? This very devastating environment. You know, a lot of people going through that would think maybe God had abandoned them. His family had thought he was dead. The, his religious order, the Jesuits, I'm sure they, after so many years, thought he was dead. But he didn't lose hope. He continued to rejoice even in the midst of this trial for one particular reason. When he made it to Siberia in, in the mid-40s to this prison camp, he rejoiced to learn he could say daily Mass. Now, the prison did not allow Mass. It didn't allow any kind of religious service. But what he found was that it would be possible to sneak away and say Mass. And so he would do this around noon every day. He and whatever prisoners who wanted to would go and, and say, he would go and say Mass for them. And they would do this at great risk if they were discovered the punishment would be swift and harsh. Not only that, this was the 1940s and 50s, so the Eucharistic fast was pretty, a lot harder to follow. Today it's one hour before you receive communion. Back then it was from midnight. So these men on starvation rations already doing hard manual labor in a brutal Arctic climate willingly gave up breakfast to receive the Eucharist. And Father Chiswick, he, he later wrote about this. He said, in small groups, the prisoners would shuffle into the assigned place, and there the priest would say mass in his working clothes, unwashed, disheveled, bundled up against the cold. There were no altars, no candles, bells, flowers, music, snow white linen, stained glass, or the warmth that even the simplest parish church could afford. Yet, in these primitive conditions, the Mass brought you closer to God than anyone might conceivably imagine. The realization of what was happening on the board, box or stone used in place of an altar, penetrated deep into the soul. He would go on to say that no other inspiration could have deepened my faith more, could have given me spiritual courage in greater abundance than the privilege of saying Mass for these poorest and most deprived members of Christ the Good Shepherd's flock. You know, in, in, in 1963, Father Chiswick was, was freed from prison and returned to the United States. 
As I said, his family had thought he had died. Legally, he was declared dead after uh, being missing for seven years. But he was alive, and he attributed that fact, he attributed the strength that led him through that trial to the Eucharist, to the strength which can come only from Christ. Like John the Baptist from the dungeon reaching out to Christ, so too Father Chiswick from the midst of this prison camp in Siberia daily went to Christ in the Eucharist for consolation, strength, so that he could maintain his faith and hope, so that he could rejoice in the midst of great suffering. You know, whenever I read about Father Chiswick or reflect on what he wrote, I I have to be honest, I personally always feel a little bit ashamed because I'm not in a Siberian prison camp, yet mass is very easy for me to say. I am under no threat of punishment of any kind, yet I don't get as much out of it as he did, right? And that's, that's true of a lot of us. We don't run great risks to come and and receive our Lord in the Eucharist. But it's in receiving him in the Eucharist, coming to him in communion, that we can receive that strength to endure any sort of trial. Please, God, none of us will be in a situation like Father Chiswick in that prison camp, but we will all face difficulties in life. And it's in the Eucharist that we can come into close and intimate contact with Christ, that we can lean on him and find the strength to persevere, to wait patiently, and to rejoice in the midst of suffering. So let's resolve to strive to imitate Isaiah, St. John the Baptist, Father Walter Chiswick. Let's turn to Christ in the midst of our trials and see the Eucharist as the supernatural food which can help us to endure any trial, any cross.